scripture lesson this morning, Genesis chapter 49. The focus for our study will be verses 8 through 12, but I'll read verses 1 through 27. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourself together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For their anger, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of the mountains up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and do pray that your spirit would help us now to direct us according to this, your word. Keep us, keep far from us burdensome cares of our lives and, and the anxieties of our lives and direct us now in the peace that comes only by your word. And so may we be all the more 
inclined to pursue after righteousness and to seek to be obedient to your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Lions and kings have a long-standing association. A lion is considered the king of the jungle or the king of beasts. Even the cowardly lion in The Wizard of Oz uh, saying that he was the king of the forest. Disney's The Lion King is quite obviously about a lion that is a king. First Mufasa and then Simba, his son. Aslan is a ruler in Narnia. And lions have been portrayed as powerful royal figures for centuries in legend and literature. How the imagery originated is hard to know, but it's certainly a biblical one, even as we find here in Genesis 49 and elsewhere in Scripture. And the gist of what Jacob is saying here, the blessing that he's placing upon Judah, isn't hard to discern. And we readily anticipate it. Judah will be a ruler, particularly his seed, his descendants after him. But as we noted a couple of weeks ago, some of the details of Jacob's poetry can be challenging, difficult to understand, and that's certainly the case in the five verses set before us this morning. Jacob blessed Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in verses 3 to 7, all of whom are disqualified for particular reasons, and now he turns his attention to Judah. And recall that 1 Chronicles 5 helps to explain what's going on here and also what took place in chapter 48. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn. But because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Birthright, the inheritance of the firstborn, went to Joseph via Ephraim and Manasseh. And though Ephraim would rule in some measure, Joseph was an Eph- uh, sorry, Joshua was an Ephraimite, and Jeroboam was from Ephraim. Nevertheless, the position of rule is given to Judah, and that's what is being officially declared here. So Jacob the prophet now tells his son what will happen in the latter days, and here we also find instruction and blessing for our faith. Jacob's words to Judah consists of seven statements, two to Judah and five to the brothers. And this is evidence in the fact that Jacob begins speaking in the second person and then switches to the third person halfway through verse 9. Also notice that Jacob explicitly mentions Judah's name three times in this short span of verses, further indicating the exalted position that's being bestowed upon him. And there's a wordplay that's uh, being used in the first two lines, and I want to draw your attention to it. The word for praise is uh, is Yodaka, which is a form of Judah's name, Yehuda. Basically, Judah's name means praise. At his birth, his mother Leah declared, This time I will praise Yahweh. Therefore, she called his name Judah. The word for hand in the next line is Yadaka, which it which also sounds similar to Yehuda, And so there's an exaltation of Judah, if you will, over his brothers and his enemies. And there's a neat little structure to verse 8. You have the, the praise and bowing down of the brothers to Judah, sandwiching the hand on the neck of the enemies. What's slightly different about that imagery? Well, typically, the foot is on the neck of enemies, but here it's clearly hand, although seeming to mean essentially the same thing. 
Judah is going to have complete victory, complete dominion over his enemies. He's going to rule over them, even as he's going to rule over his brothers. They'll praise him, they'll celebrate his victory, and also bow down to him. The bowing down of the brothers rightly reminds us of Joseph's dream uh, back in chapter 37 and verse 7, when the sheaves representing the brothers would bow down before him. And that did happen before King Joseph. But now that's transferred to Judah. Of course, this won't be fulfilled for some time. In fact, it won't be until David before this happens, ten generations from this point. But Judah is a conqueror, one who takes dominion, which is what kings do even as they imitate God the king. And if the brothers who represent Israel praise and bow down, and the necks of enemies are controlled, then the Gentiles are conquered. Again, this is seen in David. Recall that no sooner is he anointed the next king that he faces the dragon-like giant Goliath. And you know the story well. You know what happens. But listen to parts of the sequence from 1 Samuel 17. Then David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. In verses 46 to 47, David responds to Goliath's taunts. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verses 48 to 50. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling, with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And then, of course, he proceeds to chop off Goliath's head, and then the rout of the Philistines begins in earnest. And then in verse 57 we read, And as soon as David returned from striking down the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Now, you'll recall from past studies that the hand pictures power. Number five, five fingers, power. So that to have the hand on the neck of the enemies is to control them, to have power or authority over them. Parents, maybe there's been a time or two when you put your hand on the back of your neck, uh, your child's neck in order to encourage him to move in a certain direction or gain his immediate attention. Well, David exhibited power over Goliath. He took dominion over his enemy, a picture of things to come under his rule as the king of Israel when all of the surrounding nations would be subject to him. Well, if Judah is the king of his brothers and his enemies in verse 8, then he's compared to the king of beasts in verse 9. Proverbs 30.30 tells us that the lion is mightiest among the beasts and does not turn back from before, does not turn back before any. Throughout the scripture, the animal world is set before us as analogous to our lives in various ways. And so Jacob employs this imagery in relation to Judah. There are a total of seven Hebrew words for lion and Jacob uses three of them in this verse. And notice that Jacob begins by describing Judah as a lion's cub or whelp. 
And then as a lion, as, as though he's growing, as though he's going to grow up. And what does he feed upon? Well, he feeds upon prey. He grows up on torn prey. The prey is synonymous with enemies. Furthermore, if Judah is a lion's cub, then that makes Jacob a lion. For the children, you, you know, you can think of, of Jacob as being like Mufasa and Judah as Simba early on in the Lion King. He is the daddy lion and calls Judah my son. But we also have to consider that what is true of Judah in particular is or will be true of Israel as a whole. This is realized, for instance, in the prophecy of the apostate Balaam in the book of Numbers as he tries to curse Israel for the sake of Balak. Numbers 23, 24. Behold a people, as a lioness it rises up and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And then chapter 24, verses 8 and 9. God brings him out of Egypt and it is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So while Judah will be the lion, the nation of Israel will be lion-like as well. Judah is specifically the ruler, the king, but all of Israel will be a kingly people. The language gone up echoes Reuben's having gone up. But when Jacob, but then Jacob says, Judah stooped, he crouched as a lion or as a lioness and who dares rouse him. The imagery seems to be going from, from action to rest. He goes up as a, a young lion prince, but goes down to rest as a lion king. And you don't bother the king at rest, or something to that effect. It's also worth noting that the posture of crouching or stooping uh, echoes all the way back to chapter 4 and verse 7, when God warns Cain that sin is crouching at his door, which basically means that the serpent is crouching, ready to strike. Perhaps Jacob is implying that it takes a lion to defeat the dragon take back the garden, to re-enter it and take dominion. The lion is the king of the beasts of the field, not the dragon or the serpent. This is partially fulfilled in the arrangements of the tribes around the tabernacle, the new garden, later in their history. Judah is positioned on the east side or at the door of the tabernacle. Still more, because poetry has a way of saying more in a condensed space, and can have multiple levels of meaning, it wouldn't be hard to conclude that part of Jacob's prophecy is hinting at the ultimate victory over the serpent, over the dragon. Well, that brings us to verse 10, and here Jacob uses imagery of royal items to describe Judah's kingship over humanity. The scepter is a symbol of rule, and that it will not depart from Judah means that he has a perpetual kingship, an everlasting one. And certainly we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Then Jacob mentions the ruler's staff. This overlaps quite a bit in bringing to mind a shepherd's staff, even as a shepherd who leads a flock and is a king in Scripture. But what does it mean that the staff is between his feet? Well, it could mean he's seated and has uh, the end of a staff resting between his feet, as we might readily imagine. But it's more likely that there's a poetic reference to the rulers coming from his loins to the royal seed that he will have. We've already noted that between the knees has this kind of connotation and between the feet has the same. The staff between Judah's feet will produce children. 
We also ought to recall that a staff was part of Judah's encounter with Tamar in chapter 38, resulting in sons. In that instance, he willingly handed over his staff to what he believed to be a Gentile prostitute. But now as a result of his repentance, here he's given an even greater staff, one that will forever endure. Perhaps we can even say that he will have an everlasting seed. Well, the last part of verse 10, which is actually one of the most difficult sentences to translate and understand in all the Bible, the the ESV reads, until tribute comes to him, which is a possibility if you revalize the Hebrew. And this is a fairly popular choice among modern commentators, particularly because it seems to parallel the last line, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Another suggested translation following uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, is until he comes to what is his. This is achieved by changing the word Shiloh in the text to Shiloh. The New King James, in keeping with the Hebrew text as is, reads, until Shiloh comes. And I'm inclined toward this understanding. But what does that mean? Well, probably a couple of things are in view here. For until Shiloh comes may be an allusion to Judah's third son, Shelah. Remember, he was supposed to be given to Tamar, but Judah sinned and didn't. Jacob could be playing off of of that and saying that there there will come another Shelah unto whom a gentle wife needs to be given. Uh, I know we didn't study chapter 38 uh, weeks ago, months ago, but Tamar was a Gentile. Second, however, the name Solomon... Uh, Sholomo is a form of the same words Shiloh and Shelah. Solomon had a Gentile wife and brought in the obedience of the nations as demonstrated in Hiram and the nations came to him for wisdom as pictured in the Queen of Sheba. So who is Shiloh? Well, it could be both of these and third, it could also be a reference to the promised Messiah, a title for Jesus. After all, he is the true husband to the Gentile wife and is the one who brings in the obedience of the nations. He is the true Shelah and the true Solomon. The writers of the Geneva Bible, among others, took this as a reference to Christ the Messiah. And given the difficulty and complexity of Jacob's poetry, I'm inclined to agree with them. In Daniel 4 and 7, we're told that there's one coming whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In Isaiah 9 and 7, we're told that the increase of the Messiah's government shall have no end. In Psalm, 78, Psalm 72 and verse 8, we're told he will have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jacob is declaring, Shiloh is coming and all the peoples shall obey him. Well, that brings us to verses 11 and 12, a text that relates to the triumphal entry, even as recounted in Mark 11, which we studied in years past. But what are some initial observations we should make? Well, there are five references to wine in these two verses, and wine has to do with kingly imagery, which we'll consider in some more detail momentarily. But also recall that donkeys are royal animals. They're what kings ride, at least Israelite kings, even as we read elsewhere of David, Solomon, and Jeroboam. Second, the word donkey appears to be a wordplay on the name of Judah's son Ur, and donkey's colt on his son Onan. Also, if you tie a donkey to a vine, it's going to eat the vine. So perhaps there's an allusion here to the wicked sons of Judah eating him up. Another part of the imagery may be that there will be so much wealth and abundance that it won't matter if the donkey is tied to the vine and eats it up. There's more where that came from. And there could also be the idea that these sons, these donkeys are kingly since they're tied to the wine plant, to the vine, 
which is the drink of kings. And again, this is, this is part of what makes poetry so challenging, trying to figure out what Jacob's talking about, and it could very well be all of these things at the same time. But we also have to recognize the imagery used in Scripture, such as Isaiah 5 and Psalm 80, where Israel is the vine. According to Psalm 80, the vine is also equated with the sun, who is also Israel. Judah's regal mount, the donkey, is tied to Israel. Judah rules in Israel. He rules the sons of Israel. And then, recall how this is fulfilled in Jesus, who sends the disciples to untie the colt, and he rides the colt into the city to the shouts of acclamation that he is the Messiah, the son of David, which means that he's of the line of Judah. The theme of abundance continues, uh, seems to continue in the latter part of the verse in that he has so much wine he can wash his clothes in them. But what else is pictured there? Wine is the drink of kings. Wine indicates rest and wine also pictures dominion. See, wine takes a while to produce. It takes time and development. The vines have to be planted, tended, pruned, and harvested. The grapes then have to be crushed the juice cultivated and then fermented to produce wine. It's a much longer process than just picking a grape and eating it or even harvesting wheat and then making bread. But stop and think about something for a moment and ask yourself, what is the blood of grapes? And maybe your first thought is wine. I suppose that's right to a point, but also not quite the correct answer because, again, wine comes later, just as we said. To get at it another way, when would you say that a grape bleeds? Oh, when it's crushed, when it's squeezed, and the juice comes out. Could it be that Jacob is hinting at the suffering that will be a mark of true kingship in Scripture, of the bleeding sacrifice? And if you wash your garments in wine and your robes in the blood of grapes, what are you going to look like? Wine and grapes. They're going to be stained a hue of red or purple. You're going to look like a walking grape. And as we know, garments are signs of authority. Vestments picture office and calling. So how can we put all of this together? Well, Judah's garments are washed in wine in the blood of grapes. The vine produces grapes from which the wine comes. The vine, who is also the son, must be crushed, his garments, his glory, washed in blood. Only by this will he enjoy the dominion promised him. The way to kingly rule is through sacrifice. Judah proved he would do this and thus be worthy of rule when he laid down his life for Benjamin. There is one who has come who has done this. When describing the victorious Jesus, the apostle uh, John the Apostle writes in Revelation 19, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 12 of our text is related to this. His eyes are darker than wine and eyes are instruments of judgment. So he makes kingly judgments. His teeth are whiter than milk. Teeth are associated with the mouth and whiter than milk with purity. The words from his mouth are pure. 
As Isaiah declares, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who, has, who, he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, salvation doesn't come by buying principles of grace or ideas. But when you get Jesus Christ free of charge, He is the King. Genesis 49 is the background for Isaiah's prophecy. Jesus is the full, complete fulfillment of this prophecy. Well, how might our faith be further directed? What else should we see and consider as this portion of Jacob's poetic blessing is before us? Well, first, Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, has defeated the dragon. He's crushed the serpent's head. He rules over his enemies and the world and is taking dominion of the earth, ruling and subduing it through the church, his people who are kings with him. Paul tells the Ephesians that we've been raised in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God and Paul says we're there too. That means we're kings with Jesus. Still more, Paul tells the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. In Revelation, John is comforted with these words. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then shortly after that, we hear the new song that is that was sung. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them kings and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus has conquered. The crouching serpent has been destroyed by the pouncing lion. And surely that elicits our praise and gives us hope and confidence that our efforts are not in vain. Little by little, as we declare the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and live according to the laws of his kingdom, dominion is being taken. And be encouraged in this truth, in this reality, despite the present onslaught from the enemy, and continue to pursue obedience and righteousness according to God's word in your own life, in your family, in your work, and whatever else the Lord has given you to do, and enjoy. Second, Shiloh has come. And so we take our place in teaching the nations to obey, even as Jesus commissioned his disciples to teach the nation to observe all that he has commanded. That's also part of the outworking of our lives as kings to God, our calling as the church. The gospel isn't only an invitation to salvation but also a command to bow the knee before Jesus the King and to submit to His word and ways. And this is truth the world needs to hear and the church needs to be reminded of. We need to remember that we are called to think and act differently, that we're ruled by a different ethic. We are those who believe and live out the blessed life of the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those persecuted for righteousness' sake, and who can rejoice when we are reviled, persecuted, and when false statements are leveled against us on account of Jesus' name. We're to be a people who speak truth with one another, who are not to be sinfully angry, who are given to honest work, and who let no corrupting talk come out of our mouths, but only such as good for building up 
that it may impart grace to those who hear. We are to be people not given to filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead given to thanksgiving. And third and finally, in our calling as kings, that means we wear garments washed in wine, that we embrace the life of suffering to which we're called. The call to kingship is the call to suffer for one another and for the sake of the world. Each and every week when we partake of the wine, we are declaring again and again our willingness to suffer for each other and for the world we're called to serve. Yes, the wine pictures rest and dominion and victory. And as we drink this wine, we become full of it. And it is a great blessing. And it makes us more and more like the king who serves the wine to us. And we are like walking grapes. Again, and kings drink wine and kings give wine. Jesus gives his blood for wine. He sacrificed himself. And so he's calling us to the life of kingship, the life of self-sacrifice. See, when you pass the wine and drink, you're declaring to those around you, I'm, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to sacrifice myself for you. And not necessarily in some great heroic moment, but in our daily lives lived with and around one another and those in the world with whom we interact day after day and week after week. See, this is where kingship begins. This is where effective godly rule is rooted. Judah evidenced it when he was willing to lay down his life for Benjamin. Jesus fulfilled it and he instructed his disciples, his church, in the same even as we hear in John 15 and what it means to abide in the vine. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so let us abide in Christ, bearing much fruit to the glory of the Father. And, and behold, and, and take a look around at, at the friends that are sitting around you this morning or even the friend who is your brother or sister, your mother, your father, your son or daughter those with whom you share a home, maybe even a bedroom. Don't forget that your spouse, your siblings, your parents, your children may very well be the closest friends, the closest neighbors whom you're called to love in this way. And for such a life, a kingly love is required. Even the kingly love that's been demonstrated in our King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are on the cusp of the season of Lent, now here, here's a, a fitting discipline to seek to further cultivate, to pray and meditate upon and to pursue with greater zeal and intention as we follow our Savior in the way in which he leads, in which he's gone before us, and which he's proven to be the path of blessing. And so let us go forth with a, a lion-like faith and conquer through the cross, which we're called to take up daily, denying ourselves, and so conduct ourselves as kings in our love for our friends and in leading the world. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious picture that is before us in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the words of Jacob fulfilled in him. Direct us evermore in the kingship to which you've called us and grant us faith and strength to pursue it all the more faithfully. 
Strengthen us by your spirit to these ends. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.